0: Isaiah 35 is magnificent. It glistens with glory in every phrase and word that is spoken. We're going to be spending most of our time there, but before we do, I want to remind you of a few things that I said a couple weeks ago. We're in the middle of Advent, and Advent is a journey. It's a journey of hopeful anticipation on the one hand. God is coming to set all things right, to right all wrongs, and to make all things new. Joyful anticipation. And on the other hand, Advent is a journey of longing and lament. Things are not yet the way they're supposed to be. And we feel that. And it's in that space, it's in that tension, it's in that gap, that already not yet experience we have, that the great prayer, the great cry of Advent arises from the people of God. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come. Please come. And we experience that in Advent. I mean, how many of us have lists of things to do that are increasing at a rate that is more rapid than what we can mark off that list? How many of us are experiencing circumstances this Advent that were unexpected and that we would rather not have this season? I'm right there with you. But I'm convinced that one of the things we need is not just a shorter list, Not just God to take away circumstances that we'd rather not have, but God to cultivate in us a prophetic imagination, a way of seeing these lists, a way of seeing these circumstances, a way of inhabiting this season differently. Advent is an invitation to cultivate a prophetic imagination, to see our present circumstances in light of God's future glory and what's coming. And so we ask that question, what does it look like to imagine, to live my present circumstances, my illness, my fear, my addiction, my loneliness, my vocation in light of God's ultimate purposes for the world? And this is what the prophet Isaiah has been helping us with. He's been giving us these really earthy but lovely images of what it's going to look like when the Messiah finally comes and sets all things right, what this new creation is going to look like. And then he encourages us to live and see our present lives in light of that future hope and that future light. In a sense, the future shines light on the present. The first image that we saw was of this mountain being raised up and all peoples flocking to it and this geopolitical peace that comes. The second image that we saw was of a new shoot growing out of a dead stump, life coming out of the most unlikely of places. And today, the image that we get is of a desert blossoming into a paradisal garden. And each image shines light on the concrete and complex realities of our cultural moment. Our vision this morning, I think, shines light on a very particular aspect of our cultural moment. It's the concrete and complex realities of human fear and anxiety. See, Isaiah 35 is a strengthening word. It's a strengthening word for people who find themselves in dark and distressing times. That's why verse four is the crux of it. Be strong, fear not. Be strong, fear not. See, it's spoken to a people who are anything but strong and fearless. (laughs) Verse 3, they are described as those who have weak hands and feeble knees. Verse 4, they are described as those who have an anxious heart. See, much could be said about these verses. Much could be said. But I want to press into this emotion of fear a little bit. Say to those who have an anxious, or you could translate it fearful heart, be strong, fear not. If I'm reading our kind of current cultural context correctly, I think it's safe to say that fear is on a lot of people's hearts and minds. Am I right? And fear is one of those human emotions that has an ability to grip us in a way that other emotions sometimes can't. And it even can express itself in really physiological ways if you think about it. I remember one time I was in grade seven and I got caught at uh, my first dance in grade seven maybe having my first kiss and about a week later uh, and the bad thing was is my mom was a teacher at the school i was going to and so about a week later my mom called me upstairs and said jordan i knowed what happened and i was so scared that i blacked out i just hit the ground i was okay I woke up when I hit the ground. (laughs) But fear can do that to us. I mean, it can be less extreme ways. It can be kind of the racing heart. It can be the tight stomach and gut. It can even be to the point of quivering, going into fetal position. Fear has a way of gripping us really strongly. And one of the most searching and personal questions we can ask is like, what am I afraid of? Fear is often underneath much of our frustration and much of our anger and much of our impatience and much of our perfectionism. And we can be fearful of a whole bunch of things, like fearful of what the future may hold, fearful of the unknown, the fear of failure or weakness or aging or loneliness. I mean, somebody once said that the greatest human desire is to know and be known, to love and be loved, yet the greatest human fear is to be known and not loved. And the Bible may even press us even further to say maybe the greatest human fear is actually the fear of death itself. And that undergirds so many of our other fears. Will my life amount to anything or will it be futile in the end? See, but fear is not just a personal phenomenon, although it is that. It's also a political and cultural air we breathe. I mean, just think about it. In U.S. politics, it seems like so many presidential campaigns are predicated upon kind of tapping into the fears of the people. And then once that president gets elected, whoever it may be, Democrat or Republican, then there's like a million books published about how we need to fear the fact that that person is at the helm. I read an article about the, this isn't just the states as well. I mean, I was living in the UK a year ago, and I remember there was all these discussions about Brexit, which is interesting, given in light of what's happened the last week. But in the midst of all these discussions, when Theresa May was right there, I read an article that said, UK negotiations with the EU are not going very well, kind of stating the obvious. But the way it described it, it said the EU is afraid of the UK, but Theresa May is afraid of the EU. Now, I don't agree with this article, and I find it's, but what I find so telling is its emphasis on fear. The relationship between the EU and the UK is primarily one based on fear of one another. And we could even talk about the kind of economic aspects of fear and anxiety as well. The Economist, once again, a UK journal, came out with something just months ago, and the head title was, Markets in the Age of Anxiety. And it spent this whole extended article talking about how our markets have become so volatile and destabilized primarily because we are a culture of expanding fear of the future and anxiety. You see, whether it's personal, whether it's public, I mean, whether it's public, whether it's political, whether it's cultural, whether it's economic, we live and breathe a culture of fear. And so it's wonderful to hear the prophet Isaiah saying to us, be strong, fear not. The question that naturally comes to my mind is like, why? Why should I not be afraid? And the answer, because your God will come. He will come. He will set things right. He will right all wrongs. He will come and he will save you. That's the message. Now, you may remember that the same message resounds throughout the early chapters of Luke. Every time the angels show up to announce that some way Jesus is going to be born, about four times in the first two chapters of Luke, you get this, what is the first thing the angels have to say? Don't be afraid. Fear not. Now, in one sense, I mean, it makes sense. If you saw an angel, you'd probably be fairly scared, too. But I think there's something deeper going. Fear not, the angels say to the shepherds. Why do they say it? For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Why do we have to not be afraid? Why can we not fear? Because we have a Savior. Be strong, fear not, says Isaiah. Your God will come and save you. I think that's the heartbeat of Isaiah chapter 35. It's speaking right into our fears and our anxieties. But then around that heartbeat in verse 4 are all these images that Isaiah gives us. They're like poetic descriptions, bracing poetic descriptions of what it will look like when God actually does come. They're images that are intended to kind of capture our imaginations and convince us that when the Lord comes, it will really be good news. They're images that are given to us by God to replace our fears with hope and to cultivate a prophetic imagination in us. So what I want to do the rest of this morning is just spend a little time holding up these three images and just let them fill your imaginations, let them fill your hearts and minds with good news. First, an image of restored creation, verses one and two. The wilderness and dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. The desert is turned into a garden. There's words of growth and blossoming, words of flowering streams and abundant life, words of joy and singing as the wilderness is turned into a place of rejoicing, the most unlikely of places where you would expect life, filled with blossoming flowers, kind of what our image is starting to depict. And Isaiah mentions the glory of Lebanon and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. And Lebanon in the ancient world was known for its towering cedar trees. Sharon was a particularly fertile and rich plain at the bottom of Mount Carmel. And so both of these, to mention both of these, is to mention symbols of abundance in that day and age. If you want to understand the abundance of God's blessing, says Isaiah, you have to imagine the desert turning into a place of towering cedar trees or to a rich and fertile plain at the bottom of a mountain, which normally means near rivers. See, creation groans, says the Apostle Paul. Creation groans physically and socially and spiritually. And according to Isaiah, when the Lord comes, groaning will turn into rejoicing. All creation will rejoice at the arrival of the Lord. This is good news spoken into fear. I mean, Chapman University did a study in 2018 analyzing what are the top fears in the U.S. right now? What are the top fears in people's hearts and minds? And it had this list of like 100 and the top 10 and all these things. And the number one fear was, interestingly, fear of government, which I found fascinating. Some 72% people fear government. But the second biggest fear, cluster of fears, there are about three of them in the top 10, had to do with environmental issues. Environmental issues. This is speaking straight into that. It's saying that whatever has been made unfruitful and futile by human sin will be made to blossom and bloom by the grace and the presence of God. The earth is not going to go to pot ultimately. We need to take care of it. We need to steward it. And God has given us that vocation. But it's not going to go to pot because God's not going to let it. He will come and the earth will rejoice again. And that's what that song, Joy to the World, is all about. It's based on Psalm 96. And Psalm 96 talks about when the Lord comes to the earth and the trees will clap their hands and the forests will sing for joy and the streams will dance because the Lord has come. See, the first image we're given is an image of creation restored. And the second image is an image of restored humanity. Verses five and six. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Notice the ears and the eyes, the receptive faculties. And then notice the image of leaping and singing. They are active things. So combined, they express receptivity and activity, a sense of total, totality. And notice how it's not just about physical healing, it's also about social restoration. Ears and eyes and tongues are the physical instruments of interpersonal communication. Think about it. I only see somebody, and we're told that all 70% of all communication is nonverbal. I only see somebody through my eyes. I see your face through my eyes. I can only hear you through my ears. You speak to me. I can only respond to you through my tongue and talking back to you. Physical healing will restore human communication and relationship and community. And it's more than just physical healing and social restoration. It's also about spiritual restoration. In the book of Isaiah, eyes and ears in particular have this kind of moral, spiritual resonance to them. Eyes in the book of Isaiah are depicted as being prideful, actually. Blind to the vulnerable of society and blind to God. And then ears in Isaiah are depicted as being deaf, unresponsive to the Lord's invitation to turn from sin and turn to him. So what we have here is nothing short of a vision of the kingdom of God. Humanity restored physically, socially, spiritually, morally. And that's why in our gospel reading in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus responds to John the Baptist the way he does. John sends his people and says, Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Did you notice Jesus' response? Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And that's why in the Gospels, writers are often just astonished when Jesus heals somebody's ears or opens their eyes. They're astonished. Why? Because such healings are signs that God has come to visit his people. Such healings are windows into the kingdom of God, foretastes of what's to come for all creation. Such healings are the future restoration of all things crashing into people's present lives. See, Jesus didn't come just to save souls for heaven, although that's important. He didn't come just to fight for social justice and political order, although that's important. He came to restore humanity. Persons in all their fullness and uniqueness. Thank God for that. The second image we get is humanity restored. And the third and final image we get is this restoration of joy. Verses 8 through 10 are worth reading again. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness, and the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And here it is. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Think about that image. A highway is opened up that leads people into the joy for which they were created and for which they so deeply long. See, throughout the book of Isaiah, we're told that God will make a way through the desert. (laughs) He, He doesn't promise to take his people out of the desert all at once. It's not that image. It's an image that he is going to see his people through the desert, the way of holiness until they find their full restoration, their full joy in the presence of God once again. And that's why I think, you know, John chapter 14, verse 6 is so powerful at the very beginning. He says Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That way language is picking up on Isaiah here. Throughout the Bible, people are being depicted as being on a journey towards overwhelming joy and gladness. And when Jesus says, I am the way, he's saying it's in me, it's by me, it's with me, it's through me that you will enter into that. Now, in this life, joy is always mingled with sorrow and sighing. Just part of the reality. It's part of the already and not yet. And yet Isaiah is encouraging us. He's saying there will come a day when sorrow and sighing will flee away. When God will dwell with his people, we will dwell with him. When he will wipe away every tear from every eye, when there shall be no more crying or mourning anymore. When our unstopped ears will hear him say, behold, I'm making all things new. When our healed eyes will finally behold the glory and the magnificence and the majesty of his face unveiled. There will come a day, says Isaiah, when traveling will finally give way to arriving and when joy and gladness will overwhelm the people of God and it will be unmingled, untainted, fullness of joy. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Be strong. Fear not. Your God is coming. HE WILL SAVE YOU. AMEN.